Hi everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Angry Environmentalist. In today's episode, we have a very special guest speaker here to discuss what it's like to be a climatologist, also known as a climate scientist, and how the Arctic and the Antarctic regions have changed over time. Our guest speaker today is a climatologist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center since July 1978 and a senior fellow at Goddard since 2005. And she's also the project scientist for NASA's Aqua Satellite Mission. Her research is focused on monitoring sea ice in the Arctic and Antarctic regions and looking at how that connects to the climate systems as a whole. She has developed a computer model of sea ice and has done field work in the Arctic and Antarctic and is the lead author of an atlas of Arctic sea ice from satellite data and has co-authored multiple books. This bio I just read is just the start of all of our guest speaker's amazing accomplishments, as she's won countless awards and was even inducted into the Maryland Women's Hall of Fame in 2020. I'd like to welcome Dr. Claire Parkinson. Thanks very much for the really nice introduction. Of course, I'm so happy to have you here. And may I just say, you're an extraordinarily accomplished person. And personally, like I look up to you for your work and all of the research that you're doing, especially in a male-dominated field. You've not only excelled, but you've helped to push the boundaries of science in terms of polar region research. And that's super awesome. Wow. Well, thank you so much for those comments. Of course. So if you're ready, we can get right into the questions. Okay. So first, what are some of the current projects you're working on? Well, as you indicated in your introduction, I have two main roles at NASA. One is to carry out sea ice research, and for that, I'm continuing to extend the satellite record of sea ice and analyze the data for both the Arctic and the Antarctic. And my other main role is as project scientist for the Earth-observing satellite mission named Aqua. Aqua was launched back in 2002 and been transmitting data about the Earth's atmosphere, oceans, land, and ice ever since that time. So it's a long record, but the satellite is now running out of fuel. And so, as expected, I mean, we knew how much fuel was going, was in the satellite from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so we knew it would be running out of fuel by this time. So one of the main tasks now is working with others to try to make the best use of the remaining fuel so that Aqua can continue to transmit data for another few years. So those are my two main projects at the moment. In addition to things like I I have two talks coming up in early February, and I'm working on those talks also. Oh, that's so awesome. So you're a very busy person, obviously. (laughs) I'm doing amazing stuff, though. So another question is, in your time working at NASA, how has the Arctic and Antarctic changed over those years? Well, in terms of the sea ice, they've both changed a lot. In the Arctic case, the sea ice has been declining uh, overall. Uh, Both hemispheres have a lot of variation from one year to another called intraannual variability. So they both have that. But in the Arctic case, Overall, it's definitely been a decline in the sea ice, and we were able to tell that by the end of the 1990s. It was clear from the satellite record, and since then, it's not only continued to have a declining sea ice cover, but it's, it's even accelerated in terms of the declines. 
Now, this situation with the Arctic was expected. Uh, with, with the expectations of global warming, it was expected that the Arctic would warm and that with warming conditions, there'd be less sea ice. So this was expected. And, and indeed, it's come out to be a part of a very clear pattern in the Arctic, which includes things like warming in the Arctic, warming for the oceans, warming for the atmosphere, land ice decreases, sea ice decreases, permafrost thawing, increased coastal erosion, shorter snow seasons, uh, longer growing seasons. All those things are complementary, and they all were predicted ahead of time. Now, of course, the predictions didn't predict exactly what the increases and decreases would be or exactly how fast they would go, but, but they did predict what would be increasing things like temperatures and what would be decreasing, which included things like sea ice coverage. So, so the Arctic case is kind of understandable. The Antarctic case has been really different in terms of, and the expectations for the Antarctic were similar to the expectations for the Arctic in terms of expecting the sea ice to be declining. But from the late 1970s, when our kind of solid satellite record began, until 2014, overall, the Antarctic sea ice was increasing instead of decreasing. So this was definitely not expected. Oh, wow. Um, and, but then, and so a lot of scientists tried to explain why this increase would happen. They tried to tie it to a lot of different things. Like some tried to tie it to the ozone hole, or some to like melt water from the ice shelves or patterns in atmospheric circulation or ocean circulation or um, oscillations, things like the El Nino Southern Oscillation. So they tried to tie it to a lot of different things, but there's no consensus. So there are speculations, but no consensus on why the Antarctic sea ice was overall increasing during during that long period of over three decades. Yeah. Uh, but then from, 19, from 2014 to 2017, there was this huge decrease in the Antarctic sea ice. It was far more rapid than the decreases in the Arctic had been, way, way more rapid. And even though I and others in the sea ice community were expecting the Antarctic sea ice to decrease at some point, none of us had expected it to be anywhere as close to as fast as what happened between 2014 and 2017. So there's this huge decrease. And again, people have tried to speculate on why this decrease happened. And some of the same types of explanations, things like melt water or oscillations in the atmosphere, various explanations have been attempted, but there again, no consensus. So in the Antarctic case, there's, there are a lot of puzzles that still haven't been sorted out, uh, but both the Arctic and the Antarctic have had major changes in sea ice coverage over the periods since the solid satellite record began in the late 1970s. But the Arctic case is so much more understandable 
and it's the Antarctic case that has a lot of big questions remaining in terms of trying to figure out exactly what's going on in the Antarctic sea ice. Yeah, that's that's so like crazy to me. It's like we have so much. There's still such a need for science, and especially this type of science. Um, especially yeah, you're sure right on that. You are so correct that you know sometimes kids in school are taught as though the science is all fully explained, mm -hmm. but it's not. I mean, and that's true of all fields of science. Science is a progressive activity in terms of it's it's never at an end point mm -hmm. you know it's always still ongoing yes oh I've, i heard something and it was like science is always proving science wrong and i okay. think and yeah. I, I like that because it's like science is saying okay well we know this but it's like we then another thing comes up and we research something else it's like wow okay yeah let's look at that again now um yeah. so i think that's awesome so next question, can you ex please explain to us what sea ice is? I think there's a like problem with people who, like, I, don't, I don't understand it quite myself either. Like there's so much different, like different like, terminology, like glaciers and sea ice. And I think that would be a good explanation. Okay, um, sea ice is simply ice that is formed by the freezing of seawater. So it's, it's like lake ice. So for people who live in areas where there's a lake and temperatures get below freezing in the winter time, when ice forms on the lake, it's because the water temperatures have dropped below the freezing point, and so ice forms. Well, sea ice is similar, except instead of fresh water, like in lakes, it's seawater, like in oceans. So it's the same concept. But because the sea ice is in the polar regions, it's much colder than in the mid-latitudes. And so some of the sea ice stays around all year. It's not just just in the wintertime that you've got sea ice. It's, it's all year long. But it's uh, it, you mentioned glaciers. So, yeah, glaciers are on land rather than in the sea. And when glaciers form, it's a very different process. So... Again, sea ice forms because seawater freezes. But when glaciers form, it's they're forming because snowfall piles up and it gets so deep that it presses down and compacts into ice. So glaciers are formed from snowfall and therefore are freshwater ice. And when, when glaciers and ice sheets, ice sheets on the land, like the Antarctic ice sheet or the Greenland ice sheet on land, the snow can pile up really deep, uh, really deep. The um, Antarctic and some areas of the Antarctic, the snow is over two miles deep. Wow. Really, really deep snow. And gravity leads to these ice sheets and glaciers sort of spreading out and going outward and down, well, downward. And so when they, when they reach the water at the edge of the continent, or in the case of Greenland, at the edge of the island, when they reach the water, they can like go over the water for a bit. And in that case, they're called ice shelves when they're still attached to the land ice. But if they go over the water enough, eventually they'll break off and portions will break off. And the portions that break off, they're called icebergs. 
And so icebergs end up in the water with the sea ice, but very, very different. You know, an iceberg's going to be way, way, way thicker than sea ice. So sea ice generally is no more than a few meters or a few feet thick, whereas icebergs can be a couple hundred meters thick. Oh, wow. I mean, icebergs are the ones that just tower over people and ships or can. I mean, some icebergs are small, some icebergs are large, but it was definitely an iceberg, not sea ice, that brought down the Titanic. And as you mentioned, there, there are a lot of terms for different forms of ice, but the sea ice is way more similar to lake ice than it is to something like an iceberg. Awesome. Okay, thank you so much for those definitions and defining those because I was always so confused when I heard these, especially in like in class, we'll talk about like glaciers and stuff. And I'm like, okay, what's the difference? You know, I never really sat down and looked at the differences and understood them. So that made it very clear. So thank you so much for that. Sure. Uh, the next question is, what is the current state of sea ice in the polar regions? Okay, uh, sea ice varies a whole lot depending on what season you're in. So uh, the current state, I'll interpret that as what's kind of like the annual cycle. So in the Arctic, the sea ice in the wintertime, like now, goes out to about 15 million square kilometers. So the area of the U.S. is just under 10 million square kilometers. So, so sea ice is spreading over an area in wintertime in the Arctic that's greater than one and a half times the area of the U.S. So it's a very large area that's covered by sea ice. And then in the spring and summer, the sea ice, large portions of it melt away. And by the end of the summer in September, the coverage of sea ice is down to about a little bit over 4 million square kilometers now. So, so it varies from about 4 million square kilometers, which is well over twice the area of Alaska. So it's still a very large area, but way, way, way less than the 15 million square kilometers yeah. in wintertime. And in terms of where it's located, it's, it's in the wintertime, it covers pretty much the entire Arctic Ocean, but it also spreads out a bit into the North Pacific in an area called the Bering Sea and the Sea of Akatsk. And then in the Atlantic portion, it spreads out into like Baffin Bay, Hudson Bay, and east of, east of Greenland. And that brings up an issue of kind of how connected the climate system is because the, the Gulf Stream, which is a warm water stream that comes up to the north in the Atlantic. The Gulf Stream brings warm water up north in the Atlantic and up over to northern Europe. So it keeps England and Norway far warmer than they would be if the Gulf Stream didn't exist. And also means that you're not getting sea ice even at very high latitudes just to the west of Norway and just to the north of Norway. In fact, way up at latitudes of like 65 to 75 degrees north, there's no sea ice in that location right to the west and north of Norway. Whereas in other areas, in the surrounding areas of the Arctic, the sea ice can go way down to like 45 degrees. 
So the Gulf Stream has a big impact on exactly where the sea ice is. Now, in the Antarctic, the sea ice has even a bigger cycle from summer to winter. So in the Arctic, it went from about 4 million square kilometers to about 15 million square kilometers. In the Antarctic, in the winter time for the Antarctic, which is our northern hemisphere summertime, but in their winter time, it can get way up at 18 million square kilometers. Yeah. So even even more than the 15 million square kilometers of the Arctic. But in the summertime, it gets down to less than the summer in the Arctic. It gets down to a, a little less than 3 million square kilometers. So the reason that there's such a huge difference in terms of how big the cycle is in the course of a year, it's actually all tied into the geography of the two regions. And if you, if you think about a map, of our globe, the Arctic, the central part of the North Polar region is the Arctic Ocean. So the central part of the North Polar region is an ocean where you've got sea ice, whereas the central part of the South Polar region is instead land. It's it's the Antarctic continent. So you've got land ice, the central part of the South Polar region, and then the sea ice is around the land instead. So in the North Polar region, You've got this ocean, the Arctic Ocean. It's largely surrounded by land. So that land that's surrounding the Arctic Ocean, like the continents of North America and Europe and Asia, uh, those continents are preventing the ice from going out even further. So that's why the ice goes out a bit into the Pacific and a bit into the Atlantic, but it's, it's hindered from expanding outward as much as it would, but those land boundaries of North America and Europe and Asia weren't there stopping it. Whereas in the Antarctic case, there, there are no land boundaries to stop it from going further in craterward. And that's why in the Antarctic case, it could get to a larger wintertime expanse. Okay. So anyway, that's those are aspects of how the 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 sea ice is right now in in the two polar regions. Oh, that's awesome! I didn't know. I knew that Antarctica was you know geographically landmass, but I didn't really know the rest about the Arctic region. So that's so awesome! Thank you for that. Cool. How do you feel about the controversies regarding climate change? Well, basically, I feel really sad that the topic has become so controversial. I don't think it had to become controversial, at least not to the extent that it has become. Yeah. And and I feel that part of the problem is how the topic has been presented both in the media and by scientists themselves. And in terms of the scientists, I really think that most of us who are older and got into this field back in the 1970s and 80s, it was before there was much attention in the media. And so we didn't get trained as to how to respond to things in the media. And I'm hoping that younger scientists now will be better trained in terms of media interactions. Because I feel that sometimes it's the climate problems have been presented as though climate change is inherently bad. And that's certainly not the case. And sometimes it's as though humans have uniquely caused climate change. And that certainly is not the case either. Climate change has been going on for billions of years. 
since way before humans even existed. And some of those changes have been terrific for us in, in terms of being crucially important for the evolution of life. Humans wouldn't exist if the Earth hadn't undergone climate change from where it started, because where it started, the Earth's atmosphere had practically no oxygen, at least the common scientific viewpoint that the Earth's atmosphere had almost no oxygen. So if climate change hadn't happened, humans would not exist. So I, I think a lot of the confusion about climate change could have been avoided if from the beginning the discussions had made it clear that climate change has been going on ever since the Earth came into existence. There are many causes for why climate changes are. Human activities now are among those causes and have been, well, since we started agriculture and certainly even more so since the Industrial Revolution. And some of the changes that humans are contributing to could lead to big problems like sea level rise. I found that in my outreach activities, audiences get it when it's presented that way. Mm -hmm. uh, they understand that the climate changes now, some are caused by humans, but not all. And they get it that really there are some actions that probably should be taken to limit our negative impacts. Now, this wouldn't solve everything in terms of if, if this presentation were the way it was presented by everybody, it wouldn't solve everything because there would still be controversy over how large our human impacts have been and what changes should be made. But I do think it would lessen the confusion. And, and another thing that would lessen the confusion would be if people would stop making exaggerated statements. Things like claiming that all the world's glaciers are retreating, which just is not true. Many glaciers are retreating, and in some cases, the retreats are having really serious consequences, but they aren't all retreating. And when somebody says that they are all retreating, then their statement can be so readily knocked down by giving a counterexample. And this leads legitimately to that person who made the statement being looking bad and, and lessening the confidence in that person. But sadly, it also ends up lessening confidence in the entire community of people who are concerned about climate change. So mm -hmm. I think the exaggerated statements are really bad all the way around. And I think lessening those would be very helpful. And one additional comment, sometimes the controversy just gets too nasty. People shouldn't be calling other people idiots just because they disagree on this issue of climate change. And I, I think if everybody were to treat everybody else with respect, there'd be a better chance of making progress on this issue. So those are my thoughts. That's awesome. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think it's definitely how we have this conversation with people and how we display the science because I know in high school we didn't get enough science about it you know I didn't really know much about it and then when I got into college and I was like I want to major in this and I was kind of just like thrown all this stuff and I'm like whoa like, I didn't know any of this and it's how the science was presented to me that I was able to grow a passion for it but if not everybody's introduced to that passion or introduced to learning about the real science and not the scare tactics from the media um, we'd all be in a better place. So I 100% agree with you. Super, super.
Next question is, how did you get into a career as a climate scientist and how could others get into such a career? Okay, my case was a little unusual, but different from yours because you clearly had an interest in climate at a much younger age than I did. And this perhaps is partly because of the times. I Climate just was not a topic of discussion when I was young. But so in my case, the subject that really overwhelmingly appealed to me was math. I love precision of math. I loved its beauty, its simplicity, its power. Uh, all of those were just hugely appealing to me. And I didn't switch to focusing on science until after majoring in math in college, which was uh, Wellesley College in Massachusetts. So I majored in math, but I was going to both high school and college in the 1960s. This was the time of the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War. These things mattered a lot to me. And by the end of college, undergraduate college, I realized that psychologically I couldn't stay in theoretical math because it was just too divorced from the reality of really important things going on in the world, like civil rights. So I realized I just couldn't go into math as a career, even though I loved math intellectually. So I got to thinking about, well, what do I want to do? And I ended up deciding that I really would like to go to Antarctica, do some studies in Antarctica. And it was partly because of the Antarctic Treaty. The Antarctic Treaty was signed back when I was in elementary school. And it was always extremely appealing to me. It was the fact that it preserves an entire continent for peaceful purposes only, which just really struck me as such a phenomenally positive international agreement that this whole continent would be for peaceful scientific purposes. So I got I decided I really wanted to work in Antarctica somehow. And so I went to the library, tried to figure out how do I get to Antarctica. And the place that just kept coming up was the Institute of Polar Studies at Ohio State University. So I wrote to them and I ended up then going to Ohio State and they did get me to Antarctica, which was terrific. So I ended up getting a PhD in climatology from the Ohio State Department of Geography, and then that's what led me to a career as a climate scientist at NASA. So that's a summary of the path that I took, and everybody's path is different, and that's one thing important for students to realize. There's not just one path of getting to a career. So now, turning to advice for others, I would say certainly learning math well is a big plus for anybody wanting to become a scientist. So I would definitely encourage, you know, paying close attention to your math courses and <laughs> learn them well. But a key also is to focus deeply on whatever the science is that really is of most interest to you. And in terms of climate scientists, your main interest might start out like with oceanography, or it might be with atmospheric sciences, or it might be polar studies, or mountain glaciers, or any other aspect. But whatever it is that really is appealing to you, I would say really focus. And as you focus on whatever's really most appealing to you, you'll soon start realizing how it's very interconnected with other aspects 
of the climate system also. And, and so you'll quickly start learning more about climate in general. But I would say really keep, keep your focus. In. And some people might have a really specific focus, things like how changes in mountain glaciers are affecting water supplies in local communities. I mean, that might be a very specific focus, and that's great. If you've got a specific focus, go for it. And pursue whatever it is that you find to be of most compelling interest. And if a student thinking about climate science as a career option, if you're still in high school, lots of colleges have really good programs in various specific areas. And so if you know what focus you want, Try to find out which college or university has a focus on that and then go there. And then once you get your degrees, there are actually now a lot of jobs that are available for climate scientists, and including like being a professor in a university, being a researcher like I am at, at a government lab, or even in the business community. Lots of businesses now need to be concerned about climate even things like insurance companies they have to be concerned about climate changes in order to properly set their insurance policies so lots of careers are out there and i think the key is if you're really interested in something go for it and delve as deeply into it as you can that's awesome advice because i know for myself you know i'm in my master's program now and I have one more year and it's like what am I going to do after I have so many passions and I know I want to be in like the climate community and in wildlife conservation as well I have two major different interests but I love them both and I'm struggling to narrow down and figure out where I actually want to work in the long run Um, so that's good to hear that yeah and and Taylor, on that, I would say, I mean, this is terrific that you are really deeply interested in several different things. And on that, you know, sometimes it's so hard to narrow down and pick. Yeah. But in that case, I would say if an opportunity comes in one of the areas that you're really interested in, jump for the opportunity. Yeah. You know, in other words, don't stand on the fork in the road thinking, well, should I go there or should I wait for something in the other area? If you're debating which of really keen interests you have to go for, if an opportunity comes out in one of them, take it. That's, that would be my advice, rather than puzzling for too long over it. Yeah. Thank you for that advice. That's very appreciated because I, I need it. I need that advice. <laughs> okay, cool. And then our last two questions, um, what are some of the challenges of the work that you do and what's your favorite thing about the work that you do? Okay, in terms of the challenges, there are lots of challenges and some of them are similar to challenges in any job. Things like dealing with different personality types and things like dealing with computer issues like (laughs) internet connectivity and computer crashes and too many emails. But in a science job, also huge challenges to get the science right. And in the climate field, huge challenges to maintain a proper balance when discussing issues of climate change. 
And then an another challenge that is unique to scientists is the peer review process. Yeah. I can go through a lot of details about that, but, <laughs> but to, to just summarize it, I'll say that peer review is really important, but it's far from perfect. And it can be a challenge both for the author trying to deal with comments that come in from the peer reviewers and also as a reviewer. I mean, scientists are supposed to submit papers that go to peer-reviewed journals, and so scientists are expected to address the comments that the peer reviewers have, but scientists are also expected to, on the other side, be peer reviewers of papers that other people submit. And that's not easy either. Being a peer reviewer, I mean, you've got to, first of all, understand what the paper is saying, and then you've got to try to make valuable comments regarding it without being overly critical. So it, it's, it's tough on both sides, both for the author dealing with the peer review and for the peer reviewer writing the peer review. So anyway, those are some of the challenges. And then in terms of what do I like best about the work that I do, I actually like the fact that I get to do my own science with the CI's work, but that at the same time, I get to be helping others, which is mainly through my role as the project scientist for the Aqua mission, but it's also through various outreach activities and through mentoring younger scientists. So I really like the combination. The combination that I get to do some of my own work, but I also get to be helpers. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that you love to help and mentor young scientists because I think at this time, with all the different types of science people can get into, mentoring is really needed. Yes, and, and mentoring has become so much more talked about than it than it was decades ago. I mean, when I started as a scientist, I don't think anybody was talking about mentoring that I heard. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure people were talking about mentoring, but it just wasn't it wasn't something in discussions that I was having with people. So, mentoring now though is a, a very big deal. It is. It's so helpful. But I just wanted to say that's all I, the questions I have. And thank you so much for coming on and doing this podcast and this episode because I think it will be really beneficial to a lot of people who are not only defining their careers, trying to get into science, or just people who want to learn more about the Arctic and Antarctic. Because I know, like we mentioned before, with media and not knowing what's science and what's not, this, the definitions and the examples and descriptions that you gave us are amazing science that can help us start to define the different polar region definitions. Well, Taylor, thanks so much. It was great talking with you. It was great to hear your comments and really great talking with you. So thank you. So that wraps up this episode of The Angry Environmentalist. I hope you guys learned a lot. And if you have any questions, feel free to DM me on Instagram at Angry Environmentalist. We're also on Twitter now. We're on Twitter. Super exciting. And remember to stay angry and create positive change.